Well, good morning. Good morning. It's uh, great to be once uh, again with you uh, today. As you know, we're uh, looking at a series on what it means to to walk this Christian life. And we have plenty of commands in Scripture that enable us to to look at this particular topic. At the start of the series, I I, uh, said a quote to you from Jerry Bridges. And I want to reread that quote because I think that in many ways is the essence of what we're trying to get to uh, throughout this whole series. And Bridges said this, We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. So in summary... The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. And that's a tremendous encouragement because the walk we walk is empowered by God's grace. God's grace sanctifies us, shapes us and refines us. Our very obedience is motivated by that very grace. And this morning, as we look in Colossians, actually, we're going to move away from Ephesians. I hope you're going well with your writing of Ephesians and reading through it. But we're going to look at a portion in Colossians which starts highlighting what it means to walk in this world to live our Christian lives in the realm of God's grace in the midst of the philosophies of this world, particularly. And that's really pertinent for us, for you and I today, because we have so much stuff coming through the the television, through the media, that is eroding the biblical truth of what it means to walk for him. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to, to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Before we read it, I just want to remind you a little bit about the letter of Colossians. Colossae is about 120 miles uh, sort of due west of Ephesus, so it's close to where Ephesus was, and it's in this valley. So you had Colossae, you had Laodicea, Thyatira was in there. And it's a very diverse culture predominantly an agricultural culture. Uh, but they had the, the Roman roads that would move from east to west. And so it was very diverse in the fact that you had a lot of people travelling through this city and, and lodging there. And uh, so what would happen is Colossae became a real melting pot for philosophical ideas, became a real melting pot for different worldviews. Sounds like Melbourne. All right? Sounds like Melbourne. A melting pot of different world views. Well, Colossi was the same, and we're talking 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. 
we, we may think that actually at the end of the day we, are, we have all this technology, we have all this, this um, access to information, but at the heart of it, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to the heart of man and woman. So Colossae was this, this diverse place. And in many ways this helped uh, provide some of the instruction that Paul gives in this letter. Because it seems that some syncretism is, is creeping into the church. So what do I mean by syncretism? Taking some ideas from the world, mixing it with the Bible and coming to a point of view. You see, Epaphras, Paul's friend of the faith, and Epaphras was probably saved under Paul's preaching that when Paul was in Ephesus, had come to see Paul in prison. And he had shared with him what was going on in this church that, Epaphras, that he had founded. I believe Epaphras founded Colossae. And he really wants to enlist Paul's help. And I think what Epaphras has been saying to him as we read through this letter, hey, we're on a bit of a slippery slope. There's some dangers occurring within our church and it relates to the variation of the gospel and it relates to the philosophies of the world that are, are slowly eroding away the truth that you taught, Paul. And one of the major things that seems to be happening is people are doubting the, the true divinity of Christ. And as we read through this, you see Paul's clear concern. And uh, I think what he tries to address here in this letter, if I want to put two broad strokes across the top, Paul wants to address, do not relapse again into paganism. Because predominantly the, the church at Colossae was a church that was saved out of paganism. Saved out of idolatry, saved out of what the world was saying and how to live. So he says, don't relapse into that form of thinking. We get that very strongly in the back part of the letter where he says, put off those things and put on Christ. And secondly, one of the major streams that flows through this letter, and we'll see this today, is don't accept unorthodox teaching. Chapter 2, which we're going to focus on today, really highlights this. Just do not accept this unorthodox teaching. And like most of Paul's letters, or all of Paul's letters that I can see, there's a real hinge point in this letter. And that's what we're going to look at today. Remember we've been talking about, even from Ephesians, there's a hinge point where, where doctrine moves to practice. And this is uh, the area of the letter where we're going to look at today, where the indicative gives way to the imperative. And the indicative is, as I've explained, the indicative is, is the facts about God and what he has done to provide salvation for mankind. And the indicative, the facts always precede our response. It's never the other way around. If it's the other way around, it's a false religion. If you're trying to earn your way to God through a whole series of practices, then you've got it wrong. Because 
What God has done always precedes our response. It always precedes how we should live, how we should walk according to God's word. How our life should be sanctified. And as Bridges said, how that should be enabled by God's grace. So let's read together uh, today's text. And I'm actually going to put it up on the screen today because I'm reading from the NASB. You know what the NASB is? New American Standard Bible. Okay, It's not a very common version here, but I think it's one of the best versions for this particular text. And we're going to have a look at it today. So do I just push a button? Yep. The red button? Blue button? Ah, there we are. So let's read this text together. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When when he had disarmed the rules and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. As I said, the indicative always precedes the imperative. Verse 6 here, this hinge point in this letter, as he moves from doctrine and, and the beautiful Christology about who Christ is, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the only time actually in the gospel, uh, in, the, in the letters of Paul, that he uses that title in that order. Christ Jesus the Lord. It typifies Paul's view that Christ is Lord. As you have received him, as you have acknowledged by faith that he is the only one that can save you, as you have received him, therefore your response is to to walk in him. So what should that walk look like? How should this union with Christ look like? What should this union with Christ look like? And then Paul gives us very three very simple, or four very simple instructions to the Colossian believers. You see them in verses 7. You are to be firmly rooted, you are to be built up, 
You are to be established and you are to overflow with gratitude. These are the pillars of a a, a walk that is following Christ. He uses two metaphors. He uses a metaphor of a tree and he uses a metaphor of a building. The first one is having been firmly rooted. Please note the, the past type tense of that. The actual tense of the verb is a perfect passive. What that means is that God and God alone is the only one that can root you in faith. And it's being, because it's a perfect thing, it has already taken place. Sometimes we don't feel like that, but it has taken place. If you put your faith in Christ, that is something that is established. It's like a tree, you know, a tree with the, the deepest roots. What do they do? If you've got a tree that, that has the deepest roots, what happens? It doesn't fall over in a storm, does it? If you've got deep roots and, and you get the, the philosophies of the world thrown at you day in, day out, because you're rooted in Christ, you won't fall over. It's like a tree deeply rooted. It's like a tree that is deeply rooted that yields fruit. That's another side of being deeply rooted is that if your roots are in deep in the soil, pulling out the nutrients, pulling out the the good things from the soil, then fruit is growing. So he states this. Your walk is a walk that understands who you're rooted in. You're rooted in Christ and he provides everything to enable you to withstill the storm. The second thing is, and now being built up in him. The tense of, of this particular, the word changes slightly. It's still a passive, which means Christ is doing this building up, but it's ongoing. Your walk is ongoing. That's pretty natural, isn't it? You don't walk by standing still. You walk one foot after the other. It's a progressive thing. It's, a, it's an ongoing walk. And he uses this building metaphor, this building picture. It's like a building being built up. And that's the same with your Christian walk. It's the same as he instructs the Colossians here. He instructs them that, that this is a ongoing thing that Christ is building you up day in and day out and the result of these two things is that you are established or the Colossian believer is established in the faith just as you were taught it's another passive tense but it's a present tense so it's an ongoing thing that we are continually being established in our faith as we hear the teaching of Christ that's what he he wants to highlight this this hinge point all these things I've talked to you about about Christ about his deity about all the fullness of God dwelling in him you Colossian believers these are things that you need to be rooted in you need to be built up in Because this establishes your faith. It gives you a firm foundation. 
is to make a person firm, to establish, to strengthen as a result of being rooted and built up in Christ. And then there's a response. For those who walk in a way that they is honouring to God because they walk in a way that's motivated by what they have received, it turns to thanksgiving. It's abounding in thanksgiving, the ESV says. I particularly like that. The look at it on the street. Or overflowing with gratitude. This is a response. It's your or my response to the, the life we have in Christ. It was the response that Paul wanted to see in the Colossians as they considered what they had received and how they were to walk. A life overflowing with thankfulness. This is the first command in Colossians to walk in him. And it's quickly followed by the second command. Commanded to walk and then verse 8 commanded to watch. And this is the heart of the letter for the Colossians. This is what we talked about at the start where, where there is some false teaching occurring. It's not taken hold. It's not like some of the other letters that Paul writes. You, know, you think about Galatians as a letter. When the Galatians received that letter, did they know what the issue was? Absolutely. Because Paul lined it up. I cannot believe you're moving away from the gospel and you're, you're trying to add circumcision and the law to the gospel. In Colossians, we don't have that. We don't have a direct, uh, a direct establishment of what the issues are. But he commands them to watch. He commands them to walk. And now he commands them to watch. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, by and large, the letter to Colossians is a really encouraging letter. He starts off in the start of Colossians and said, I, I thank the Lord for your faith, your love and your hope. These things are tremendous and you're growing in God's grace. But here, he, he commands them to be watchful. Be incredibly watchful because there are false teachers afoot. So what is the false teaching? Well, we'll try and deduct the elements of this false teaching by looking through chapter 2. We get a, a fairly sizable chunk in verse 8, this, eight, this verse that we'll look at now. We see what he is really concerned about because Paul says, I don't want any of you 
believers to be taken captive through this philosophy. Now, taking captive is a, an interesting word, right? What, it mean, what does it mean to be taken captive? Taken over, right? Taking captive is normally something that happens when a, an imposing army comes in. The Colossian believers would have understood this, right, because they're controlled by Rome. They've been conquered by Rome at some point in time in their past. They knew what it meant to be taken captive and become a slave to, to the Roman Empire. But now Paul uses this in a term of don't be taken captive by human philosophies. Don't be carried away or robbed from the truth into the slavery of error, if you like. Or another way of putting it is don't be carried off like a plunder from an invasion of an enemy force. And he, he relates this to the truth of the gospel versus the truth of the world. And he starts saying, well, these are some of the primary elements of this false teaching that, that you Colossians need to really look out for. These are some of the things that are going to infiltrate you if, you, if you're not showing discernment. So let's look at some of these. Firstly, he labels it. Don't be captive through philosophy and empty deception. So philosophy and empty deception. In Paul's day, unlike today's day, philosophy was far broader. Okay? Philosophy was a concept that basically covered all systems of thought. And today we have far narrower views of philosophy. I mean, you know, philosophy of Marxism or communism or whatever it might be. But in Paul's day it was just uh, the wide system of thought of the world. It's interesting, isn't it? He says, captures to philosophy and empty deception. He lines philosophy of the world to empty deception. It's hollow by nature. And he further tells us what this philosophy is about. According to the tradition of men. So it depends on human tradition. That's another mark of false teaching. False teaching normally always depends upon human tradition. The characteristic of a philosophy that's full of empty deception is its source as man. It's a product of human speculation as opposed to divine truth. Secondly, this empty deception and philosophy depends on the elementary principles of the world according to the elementary principles of the world. So this philosophy and empty deception has one, its, its basis is from man and secondly, it's depending on these elementary principles of the world. Now, what's an elementary principle of the world? Does anyone know? No. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think in terms of what Paul is driving at, in terms of what's going on in Colossae, the elementary principles of the world is unlike what the NIV translates it. The NIV just says it's spiritual forces of this world. 
Okay, it locks it into a system. I think elementary principles of the world are broader than that. I think it's a summary for a whole complexity of religious beliefs and practices centered around the four elements of the physical cosmos. What are the four elements of the physical cosmos? Water, air, earth and fire. Right? The four elements. This is, a, this is big during Paul's time. This is big during Colossi's time. The, the, the philosophers of the time, Philo and those sorts of fellows, were, were doing huge amounts of work around the physical cosmos and how that related to the world. And I think what he's getting at is these practices involved venerating or even worshipping the elemental principles. So the false teachers were, were coming in and saying, hey, you need to worship something other than God. Let's worship the water. Let's worship the air. Let's worship the environment. Let's worship the fire. And we'll do that on certain dates of the year. We'll have a calendar of worship. And that's some way is going to draw you closer to God. Because after all, the universe is God's. You can see the thinking, can't you? So I think Paul is, is working through this and saying, hey, realise you're not to... These false teachers are going to draw you from Christ and draw you to the elements of the world. But this is the main focus here, as you see in, in verse, end of verse 8. These things are, are very dangerous because they draw you away from Christ. You Colossian believers, these things will draw you away from Christ. None of these philosophies align with Christ's truth, the truth which I've expounded in the first chapter. What these false teachers were doing was attempting to build a human religion, a religion based on their own views and based on the principles of the cosmos and traditions of men and it's devoid of all the power of Christ they were trying to promote at the heart of it a spiritual experience beyond Christ that's what they are trying to do but as Paul continues through chapter 2 he highlights that Christ is the one to whom God exclusively is to be found. The one through whom the world was created and through whom it is redeemed and the one who has decisively defeated all the hostile powers. And any teaching that detracts from those things and the exclusive role of Christ is by definition false and heretical. And that's where he draws it. What are some of the other things? I'll just quickly go through some of the other things that are, were defined as false teaching. You, you would have in chapter 2, um, the false teachers were advocating observance of certain food and restrictions, uh, diets, etc. They were practicing uh, ascetic type things. Okay, If you do this to your body, this will purify you and, and make you holy. Verses 18 and 23 of chapter 22. They had a unhealthy focus on angels verses 18 
And the false teachers made a great deal about visions they had seen. Verse 18. And they were proud. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us that the false teachers lose connection with the head of the body. They lose connection with Christ. And verse 20 to 23 tell us that these false teachers propagate various rules. And Paul regards those rules as completely worldly. Uh, But these false teachers will propagate those rules and say this is really important for your spiritual growth. It's also evident throughout the letter there's three other things that the false teachers do. They, in some way, use the language of fullness incorrectly. They're offering a full spiritual experience that could not be found in Christ alone. Because you see this emphasis through the letter on the fullness of Christ. Secondly, they seem to do something with circumcision. So a bit like the Jewish thing, you must be circumcised to be holy type thing. And thirdly, throughout the letter, and this is the critical one I think, is in the most serious piece of false teaching, is they were not upholding the true deity of Christ. So what is the solution for the Colossians in relation to this? There's two solutions given, I think in verse 9 and 10. The first solution is that in Christ, in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul states it right out there. In your walk you must realise that Christ is who He is. He is fully God and fully man. And this is a primary doctrine of the Christian faith. If you want to test a false teaching, test it against that. Who do you say Christ is? And if it comes out and they say Christ is either created or some other version, then it is false. You think about Mormons, you think about Jehovah's Witness, you think about uh, even Seventh-day Adventists, they all dispute the deity of Christ. This is fundamental to our faith. The Nicene Creed puts it beautifully. This is a thing that was discussed in 381 AD because this was an issue that was going on in historical times about who Christ was. Was he fully God? And we we draw this from the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. What a statement to the divinity of Christ. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, full of grace and truth. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light from light, very God from very God, begotten not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. This is the key. Christ, when he walked on earth, was fully God and fully man. Secondly, Secondly, we have the second reason on how Christ remedies the error against false teaching. Firstly, he is fully God, fully man. Secondly, and in him 
you have been made complete. Just dwell on those, that phrase for a little bit. If you're a follower of Christ, think about that. In him, you have been made complete. What more do we need? Nothing. And then in verses 11 and 12, he, he shows us how the Colossian believers are complete in Christ. Firstly, the circumcision which they have experienced is not a physical circumcision. It's not something made of human hands. It's a circumcision by Christ. It's called the circumcision of Christ, actually. And it's a circumcision of the heart performed by the Spirit the day these Colossians were saved. It's the same circumcision of the heart that we receive the day we put our faith in Christ. Paul's clearly using the picture of circumcision as a transfer from the old life to the new life and he he continues to do this in chapter 3. This picture demonstrates the conquering of the power of sin that takes place when a person comes to faith in Christ. Because Christ's death is our substitute and gives us life and gives us freedom. And secondly, he uses baptism as a metaphor. He says, you're also buried with Christ in baptism and you are raised with Christ in baptism. So these are part of what it means to being complete in Christ. Your spiritual well-being is wrapped up in Christ. In the verses 13 to 15, we see God's action through Christ. And this is tremendous truth. Tremendous truth. Verse 13, he has made us alive with Christ. Made us alive with Christ. He has granted forgiveness of sin. That just doesn't mean just some sin. That means all sin. Past, present, future. You realise that? There is no power of sin over a believer. Yeah, sure we sin. Sure, day in, day out, we need to walk this life and we need to be before the Lord seeking his grace. But the power of sin is done away with. God sees you through the perfect righteousness of Christ and his perfect sacrifice. Hallelujah, what a saviour. So he's made us alive. God's made us alive through Christ. He's granted us forgiveness of sin. And this next part, I just love verse 14. He's cancelled the debt. I think the forgiveness of sin and cancellation of debt is best expressed by that wonderful hymn, It Is Well With Our Soul. The third verse of that hymn says this. I won't sing it, I'll just quote it. My sin, oh the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What's the next line? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's what God has done through Christ. Forgiveness of sin, cancellation of debt. Not only that, he's disarmed the opposition. Verse 15. 
In verse 10, he starts this. He, he tells us that in Christ, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 15 expands that. He has ruled to such a degree that every piece of opposition is disarmed. It's been disarmed through Christ's victory on the cross. There's victory over all rebellious powers. Through Christ's resurrection and ascension, this public display of his resurrection and ascension has disarmed all spiritual wickedness and forces. Defeated foe. So do spiritual forces have any claim over the believer? No. And that's what the end of the verse says. Having triumphed over them through him, through Christ and through us. We have this victory because Christ is in us and these, this opposition has no, no rule, no reign. We're moved from the old life to the new. Do you have certainty of these things? Do you have certainty of the fact that Christ has placed a new heart in you when you call out in faith to him? Do you have certainty in the fact that you've been made alive with him? Do you have certainty of the fact that you have forgiveness of sin, cancellation of debt, that the ruling authorities have no power over you. Do you have certainty of that? I'll appeal to you today. Ensure you do have certainty. Today is a day of salvation. Cry out to the Lord in your weakness and in your sin and say, Lord, I trust. I trust. So the Christian life from start to finish is based on God's grace. It's given to us through Christ. This portion of scripture today highlights our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is the primary motivation for our walk. Did you notice as we read through there how many times in him or in Christ is mentioned? It's incredible, isn't it? Verse, I'll just work through it because it's so, so beautiful. 2.6, so walk in him. 2.7, you have been rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. Verse 11, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, you have been buried with him in baptism. Later in verse 12, you've been raised with him through faith. Verse 13, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all your your sins and transgressions. And finally, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Our union with Christ as believers is so central to our walk. So central. So union with Christ that enables us to walk in him, to be rooted and built up in him, to be established in our faith, to respond with gratitude and thankfulness. 
See, our union with him causes us not to be tripped or led away by false teaching. So we're complete in him. Our spiritual life has been given by him. The Father has given us through Christ. He's made us alive. He's granted forgiveness of sin. He's wiped the slate clean and he's disarmed all spiritual forces against us. And it's in and through Christ we have victory. These are the things that shape our lives. Not the philosophy of the world, not the, the human and empty deceit that the world throws down at us. This is where Paul goes with the Colossians. This is where he's calling us today. Be shaped by Christ. Make Christ your centre. Realise your union with him is what gives you life and walk in it. In the 1960s, the Liverpool Football Club. I don't know much about soccer. I don't even like the game, but I like the story. The Liverpool Football Club started singing a song. It was a Jerry and the Pacemakers song. And the song was, I'll Never Walk Alone. And from the 60s onwards, it's become the theme song of that football club. So whenever they're losing, they'll say, I'll never walk alone. Whenever they're winning, they say, I'll never walk alone. But it's evidently tremendous to listen to the 30,000, 40,000 people just bellowing this thing out. That's fine for the Liverpool Football Club. For you as believers, you never walk alone. Never, ever walk alone. Because you are rooted and being built up and established in the faith by Christ himself. Take great joy, take great comfort in that. Because that's essential to our faith. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this incredibly instructive portion of Scripture. We thank you for the truth of the fact that our union is in Christ. Help us to have our hearts and our minds focused on him and him alone. Help us to avoid the deceptions of human philosophy and empty deception. Father, give us discernment that only your spirit gives. Father, we yearn for the day when we'll be face to face. But here and now as we walk this life, Empower us, we pray, to be Christ-centred in all we do. Pray this in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.